You're listening to the DC Real Estate Podcast, the podcast where we focus exclusively on all things local to the DMV area. Local investors, local knowledge, local experts. Our journey starts now. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to this week's episode of the DC Real Estate Podcast. We're here again with Ron Gallagher this week, filling in for Jack, who's got COVID. Hello, everyone. And our special guest this week, why don't you introduce yourself? Hey, I'm Kevin Leahy, um, the director of podcasts at Bigger Pockets and a client of Russell's, friend of friend of these guys, and applaud you on creating this show. I think it was a great idea. Awesome. Thanks. So Kevin's also, in addition to working for Bigger Pockets, is a local investor here in D.C. He's got a uh, was actually under contract now to close later this week on his next property, which is an interesting coincidence because we scheduled this before we were even making offers on that property, I think. Yeah, we're going to close Friday, and that will be a primary residence, kind of a step up, actually paying the full mortgage, not house hacking, but with the idea to turn it into a rental in three to five years or just, you know, have multiple options there. So kind of progressing through that, you know, hardcore house hack and then house that could be rented um, and just trying to delay gratification on the million dollar house or the one point. Two million dollar house. Yeah, and one of the things I think that's interesting about this property uh, that he's closing on is in it's in the Tacoma neighborhood, and that's specifically one of the reasons that he is buying it. Um, as we'll talk with Dr. Joe on a different episode about certain neighborhoods having higher than normal Section Eight rents, Tacoma is one of these um, neighborhoods. Yeah, and I I just became an expert on those neighborhood boundaries, and they're roughly mapped to what you think of as that neighborhood, what you think of as Tacoma, but they're not always what you think. Like the Tacoma Rec Center is technically in Brightwood, right? So you'll see signs that say certain things, and then you'll look up the city records, and they don't belong to that neighborhood. And so you just want to become familiar with those areas, and if you're doing any off-market stuff, you really want to be concentrating your marketing efforts in a specific neighborhood. Um, if you're like me and you only need one deal a year or something like that, you want to focus on these little pockets where you have an advantage. Cause I don't think too many other people making offers on this property. were thinking of it as a rental. And I knew I could go all the way up 125 over asking, put less than 20% down and it will still work as a cash flowing rental. And that's only because of that neighborhood knowledge and the Section 8 program, which I'm sure we'll touch on. Yeah, and if you were wondering, that was not a misstatement by Kevin. He did go 125000 over asking, um, or right about there. Um, and this is in a neighborhood that has not traditionally been hot, which can kind of show you the lack of inventory in our market. Um it, Tacoma would normally be a neighborhood, might go a little above list, might get two or three offers, but there was, um, I think, 14 offers on this property, um, and we had to go substantially high, and we used some other strategies, too. Um, I had a good relationship with the listing agent, so it was able to kind of feel them out and understand what some of the other offers might be. So one thing we did um, is came over the top with a huge EMD here. Um yeah, and I heard a guy named Tim Shiner talk about on the Bigger Pockets podcast about how he he would put down hundred thousand dollar EMDs, and that that was when he had more you know outs in the contract than we had. We didn't have that many outs. This kind of pretty much committed us to this property, which which was fine. Um, but 
it can be a good strategy when you have, it's just, you know, it doesn't mean that much if you know real estate and you know, well, that means, okay, the guy could still walk away after the inspection uh, clause, but to a hope to a seller, that's like, wow, that proves, okay, this guy has a hundred K cash liquid really grab their attention. Yeah. And you know, if, if you are a hundred percent certain you're going to close on the property, it is a distinction that really has no bearing on you as the buyer. You're just putting that money into escrow at the start of this contract instead of the day before, you know, day before closing. Um, but it really helped us stand out here because the second best contract had a $60,000 earnest money deposit. And normally at this price range, I would normally see um, $25,000 EMD, substantially less, you know, a third of what we ended up putting in there. Yeah, you just can't apply the old rules. You can't go and buy home home buying for dummies right now from 2012 and apply those rules to this market. You have to shift and just know the seller had all the power in that negotiation. And we just were super aggressive and um, went for it and wound up kind of sneaking in there with a 3.125 interest rate and, um, you know, just trying to take the big picture view, which is a theme with my investing. Yeah. And actually the interest rate you get got, you wouldn't get that interest rate today, just two weeks later. Um, interest rates are about half a point higher than they were when you locked it in. So it was a, and I think you did buy it down a little yes. bit, but, um, um, I think the days of three, 3% are essentially gone. So the plan is to live in this house, no tenants. You're not going to rent out the basement or something. Wife loves the house. I mean, we have a basement that we can use for more storage. We're gaining a level from where we're at right now and we'll really enjoy the house. Great work from home spaces in there, but it could easily be converted into a four bedroom using the basement. And it could probably be converted pretty easily into a five bedroom using a room, which is very sunny and well appointed right off the kitchen in the back. You know, Ron, you've talked about how a lot of these row houses have these, you know, back sunrooms, um, and you can sometimes convert those. And this one's pretty much ready-made It's 70 square feet. And, um, a family would love a voucher holder family would love this house. And who knows, maybe it'll appreciate a lot between now and time we set, we look at that option as well. Yeah. And so you mentioned the voucher holders. And so the interesting thing here is if we turn this into a five bedroom, Currently, as it's situated as a three-bedroom with a Section 8 tenant, it would get thirty-eight seventy-two in rent. If we can bump up that bedroom count, which is pretty easily achievable in this property, we push that rent from thirty-eight seventy-two up to just under fifty-five hundred a month, which is an insane amount of money, particularly for Tacoma. Um, I would say the market rate rent on this house in Tacoma is probably thirty-three to thirty-five hundred. Um, so we're talking 2000 more than the market. Um, and this is just a crazy inefficiency in the market that exists in certain neighborhoods. And this is one of them. And Kevin is really taking advantage of that inefficiency. Yeah. And until you, you know, you'll hear Dr. Joe talk about this on his episode next week or whenever you guys air that episode that he just recorded. But I think until you see it in action, um, when you list a property to voucher holders, and right now I'm listing a three bedroom because I'm moving out of a three bedroom yeah. apartment and I'm have I'm having tenant screening conversations and, and speaking with people. And a lot of these three bedroom families, they might have four kids. It's like two adults and four kids or one adult and five kids. 
And that that's three bedrooms. And so you can imagine there's plenty of people with families even bigger than that. And there's less supply for the four and five bedrooms. And so these are all just, people that really could use four five, six bedroom they probably houses. should have that, right? But I mean, like, the houses aren't out there. They're, they're not out there. And if you can provide a great one in a quiet neighborhood, um, most of them say, I'm looking for a more peaceful environment. That's the number one thing that they say. You know, it's funny you say that because you were you were not here when Joe was recording, and that's literally one of the things he said that his applicants are looking for. They're looking for a quiet, normal, peaceful neighborhood because they're they're in these neighborhoods with uh, you know very loud, a lot of crime. You know, they don't want their kids in those. So it's interesting that you're hearing the same exact thing from your applicants as Joe's hearing. Yeah, um, yeah, for sure, and. You know, it's just, it's, it's nice to look at someone like Joe and take some of his tenant screening methods and try to apply those directly and just ask people open-ended questions like what, so why, why are you deciding to move? Right. And a lot of times they'll give themselves away as, oh, they've hired some lawyer to fight the Topa rights when they're landlord. I mean, I had a few people volunteer these things to me and I'm like, okay, that's check them off the list. And I once you know, I use past landlord references as the backbone because with these tenants, you're not going to focus on credit. You're not really going to focus on their income. You want to look at how much they're contributing to the rent compared to the voucher. But mostly you're just concerned about their previous rental history and um, whether they're going to be nice to deal with and whether they'll take care of the property and stay. You know, it's funny that I, I love the idea of asking open-ended questions and just letting people you know, dig themselves a grave. Um, and it goes for, it's so true for whether it's tenant screening or other situations. So, uh, Ron and I bought a property from a landlord and, um, it's an interesting story. We like the guy. He's actually a friend of ours now, but we go to meet him and he doesn't have his agent there. And, uh, he is just talking and talking and talking. And at the end of the conversation, Ron, I had asked you, do you know how much this guy wants for his house or how much do you want to offer for the house? And I think you had said like, I was like, Kevin, I was like, I'll pay over asking. I mean, it was going to cash flow or whatever. So I was going to willing to pay whatever for it. And, and I had said to Ron, I think the house was listed at about five fifty, And um, I said, we're going to get this house for 500,000. Ron's like, how do you know? I was like, I was like, the guy just told us three times in our conversation, what he was willing to take for the house without really realizing that he had said it. He had kept saying how hard it is to save half a million dollars. And he had said that three times. I was like, half a million dollars is exactly what he's willing to sell this house and for. And now we're trying to buy another house from him. And the deal's falling apart with his buyer because um, there's no agent involved. Like, yeah. there's no moderator. There's no arbitrator. So that deal fell through. I was the backup buyer, and now I'm back in the pole position as the you know person's going to buy. And hopefully, with a with an agent stepping in, we'll be able to actually make the deal happen. Yeah, we're going to buy it for about eight hundred twenty thousand, and this is a property that that I think would sell for a million dollars to the right investor. So um, it's just kind of crazy. But like you said, just ask open ended questions, and it, it's shocking what people are willing to tell you. Yeah. And, you know, go find the previous property manager, go find the landlord. And usually if they don't include that on the application, there's a reason for it. And once you dig into it, you'll get the real story. And let me just say this to all the landlords that are listening. If you get a phone call or an email from me or Kevin or Russell 
asking about your prior tenants. Answer just a text saying, yeah, this person was great or no, don't rent to this person. We need this sort of like landlord fraternity sorority thing going on. We need to look out for each other. So we so it takes two seconds to answer that call. When I get those calls, I sat sit and chat with the person, reassuring them that this tenant was good or telling them, nope, never rent from this person. So do it on both ends. You know, when you you definitely need to call the prior landlords, but also when you get that phone call. Um, answer it because we we're relying on that information. So that's a call to action. Yeah. So, <laughs> so uh, another thing in our contract to purchase property um, is that we re- waive the appraisal contingency altogether, um, and that is stressful for a lot of buyers. And it's it's actually kind of stressful for me. Right, writing up the offer, thinking. You know, what's the probability that this property won't appraise and how bad is it going to fuck over my client here? Um, and shockingly, uh, I guess not shockingly, because actually I did tell Kevin, I was like, 98% of the time, a property will always appraise. And this was, there should really have been no, you know, values in the market to support this, you know, price, but it, it still did appraise it at the contract price substantially higher than the list price. But you're um, getting a mortgage with this, right? So yep. Yes. Um, but the one thing I would say is if you're removing the appraisal contingency and you're putting all your cash down on the property, that could be risky, right? Because then, then you're in a position of having to bring more to the table if it doesn't appraise and you don't have that money and you need to go get it from somewhere. So we put a little less down knowing that that could happen just to keep some cushion there. And just in general, we put... 15% down on this just to not take our bank account to, you know, to zero danger levels, right? You always want to be able to handle something that, that comes up. Um, so yeah, but, we just, but the bank, the lender is always sending out the appraiser. They have their little list of appraisers, right? Tell me yeah. if I'm wrong, Russell. So, and they also don't, don't the, are the appraisers equipped with the, the sales price number? So the, they're always trying to hit the number because, yeah, so the appraiser has a copy of the contract in hand. They know exactly what it is under contract for. And most appraisers are looking at that, right? So the number one justification for a value is what a buyer and seller agree to sell it for, right? That those That's are, the that's clear the market price. Right. Um, and so most appraisers are working backwards from that, looking to see, is there justification for this sales price in the market? But here's the key. Appraisers are people, right? Some people are good at their job. Some are bad at their job. Some people are very nice. Some people are assholes, right? So we do get appraisers who are just, you know, are just assholes and do and will not appraise the property no matter what. And they, the, the names of those appraisers gets around in the market. Um, I think, I think where it can go sideways and it did on us. And this is like you said, 2% of cases, but the primary residence that I'm in now that I'm moving out of the one I'm doing these tenant screenings for, we purchased that in early 2020 and it was a different configuration than most other duplexes around there. The previous owner had put three bedrooms in one unit and two bedrooms in the other. So she had turned, turned it into more bedrooms, which made it a better income producing unit and made it more valuable to me because I was looking at it as a re- income producing unit. But the appraiser was looking at it compared to other duplexes with kind of different footprints and not really taking that into account. And he he appraised it low 
by like 40,000. Additionally, something. not only did he appraise it low, but uh, one of the comps he used was actually not a legal multifamily. It was a house with an illegal basement apartment, which has a huge distinction in value in the marketplace. Um, and actually, when we won that offer, um, one of the strategies we had used in getting our offer accepted was the seller was an agent who did not have a ton of experience. And I had just kept telling her, her name's Amanda. I was like, Amanda, I sell a lot of multifamily. I understand the intricacies and the appraisals in it. I don't believe you're going to be able to get this appraised on your own because I don't believe you have the experience to. I will help you get the house to appraise, right? So buyer's agents are usually not involved in the appraisal. And it was one of the considerations that she took and then the property didn't appraise, and I was very easily able to go through the appraisal, find all the flaws that this guy had made, and get a reconsideration, and they allowed it to appraise. Yeah. So I don't know what's customary, because my agent goes to all the appraisals. Well, that's because your agent's me. Right. So <laughs> I don't know what's customary, but if, it's, if, if your agent isn't going to the appraisal, ask them to go to the appraisal, or beat the appraiser, and... Discuss. Yeah, so the listing agent typically does. The buyer's agent does not. Um, and a lot of times for you, we've been doing it on refinances. I do that because I want you getting your value as high. Right, because like one time it was a HELOC. Yep. And the value that came back was cra- I mean, crazy high at the time. and But that allowed me to get a HELOC with a, a line of credit of $160,000. And so now when we're trying to buy another property out of the blue, um, I don't have $200,000 to put down on a property right now, but I can go tap into that HELOC. You know, I can, I can generate, I can be my own bank and get $160,000. But it was only because you, Russell was there present at the appraisal. Was that the, um, the appraisal on Parkland? No, this is the one on 14th street okay. that, um, cause the one on Parkland was funny. Cause he, uh, he actually like the guy knew who heard I was. our voices, right? Yeah. He was like, have you guys been on a podcast? Do I? You, you sound very familiar. <laughs> yeah, it, stuff gets weird sometimes when you're trying to extract the most value for, you know, as far as rentals and rent for, rent by the room. But you're also trying to have the best of both worlds. They actually talked about this on the Bigger Pockets podcast that came out yesterday, where you're trying to, you're using a single family house, which really isn't designed for rental income. It's designed as a property that's compared to other properties for people to live in. And, um, sometimes with the refis, it gets, it gets weird. Like a guy was asking, Oh, I take these five bedroom houses and I, I put all the common rooms and turn them into bedrooms too. So they're just like all bedrooms and I make them eight bedrooms. But then when I go to refi, the guy comes out and he's not giving me any more value for the eight bedroom than a five bedroom. He might even ding me for it. And so like, how do I handle that? Right. And you know, their advice was to just try to get that refi done as a five bedroom and then do your construction afterward. Yeah. But it, it just, sometimes you do have to realize, you know, we're kind of, it's kind of a, 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 you know, round peg in a square hole yeah. deal. I'm always telling um, my clients as well as newer agents, I, I have to sell a house twice. I have to sell it to a consumer, then I have to sell it to an appraiser. Um, and there's a lot of nuance to winning the appraiser over to view things the way you see. Um, a lot of it is, you know, stroking their ego, showing them that you value what they're doing. 
Um, Cause a lot of agents just shit on appraisers, which is the absolute wrong approach to do. If you're going to shit on someone, they're going to shit on you right back. Um, but we got that, uh, that reconsideration on your duplex in Brooklyn and got that value up and was able to close on it. And so that's sort of a, a good segue into, so the current house in Tacoma we're buying is uh, going to be an upgrade for you guys with the idea that you'll turn it into a, a rental down the road. But you are currently house hacking a legal multifamily in the Brooklyn neighborhood. Yes, we live. Uh, it's a duplex where there's two entrances side by side, but but one has a staircase going upstairs, and then it's a one level apartment upstairs on the top level, three levels to this uh, property. And that's a two bedroom, one bath apartment up there. So that's a two bedroom in the Brooklyn neighborhood. And you can look that up, but it's about $2,200 a month rent, 2,300 maybe. I cover the utilities because it'd be a pain to split up all the meters. Um, so I just keep that going and it, it generally kind of washes out because they have different rents for if the landlord pays utilities or if the tenant pays utilities. So you're getting about 2,300 in rent from your tenant there. And yes. what, what, what's your mortgage payment there? Or actually, cause you refinance, I'd be curious to know what your original mortgage payment was and what your current it's one is. It's a good is. question. I think the original payment was around 2,900. It was, it was like 2,890 or something. Okay. So independent of other costs, you're essentially in there with a $2,900 payment your tenants bringing in 2300 so you're out of pocket about 600 bucks or so a month um, on a housing payment in the fourth most expensive city in the country. Yeah, quiet neighborhood. Who, who says who says DC's too expensive? Kevin's living for 600 bucks a month. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to be fair, you know, you you got to put down some money. So, uh, you know, I I do believe you do have to get your finance in general if you want to go the path that I'm going, you do have to figure out some foundational things regarding your finances and get over some of those mistakes. A lot of people make in their twenties and just use, just try to become valuable at your job or switch jobs or switch companies or become kind of an entrepreneur. Like I am where I left a career, I built a skill set, and then I wasn't very fulfilled by that work I was doing in that place anymore but I took that skill set somewhere else where I would be very fulfilled and really enjoy it. And it brought a whole new level of energy to my career, but I'm not a risky enough person to just quit. Like a lot of people you hear in the podcasts and just go all in on trying to wholesale houses or something like that. That's not the path I would want to go on. And so for me, it was about like mastering the, the finances a bit and learning that self-discipline and, and delaying gratification to be able to put down, you know, a 15% down, you don't have to put that much down. I mean, I could have put a lot less down on that and it still would have been a good deal, right? Live yeah. for a thousand bucks. Or if I was single, I could get that place and have two roommates and live for free, even putting 5% down probably. So, so what is your payment after the refinance on this? It's probably like down, it's in the 2,500s now. Yeah. So now we're down to 200 a month, uh, two, 300 a month. PMI goes away because I have 20% equity now. So, um, yeah, now we're down to a few hundred bucks a month. And then now the fun part begins, uh, because we get the tenant in there into the three bedroom spot and you know, the, the unit's in great shape. There's some little repairs that need to be made, but we took care of it obviously. And that's, 33 or I'm sorry 3131 I think is the rent for the three bedroom. 
So when we add these two rents together, we're going to be at basically 4,400. No, it's like 5,400. 5,400. Oh, you're right. I'm doing the math entirely wrong here. So we're at 5,400. We got, what'd you say, a 20? It's like 25 something. 2,500. So it's like going to... Cash flow about nineteen hundred ish. There'll be yeah, other expenses. I, you obviously, you know I go pretty conservative, and yeah. I think people need to know. To, there's repair and maintenance monthly. It's important to learn that you know you should, whatever it is, depends on the rent, depends on all the numbers. But if you budget four percent of your rent for repairs and four percent, you can go pretty conservative. Let's say per door, you do two hundred a month set aside for repairs, two hundred a month set aside for capex. Yeah. I would go probably even a little more conservative because these turnovers, especially when you do Section 8, can be very expensive. Can be expensive. Um, Repainting is expensive. The vacancy factor, don't underestimate that. There's a lot of paperwork to go through, and you know it's a little bit more maybe um, than – it's definitely more turnover cost than with a typical tenant – but all, all that said, I did the conservative numbers, $1,400, $1,500 a month cash flow. Yes, yeah, and if you're taking a global real estate portfolio view, whatever your payment is on the Snake Tacoma House, essentially is deduct $1,500 from that, and we sort of have a global view of what that is. And once, and once you rinse and repeat, right, so we bought a primary residence, which is duplexed, moving out, turning it fully into a rental. That'll be the goal again, and you'll probably buy a third primary residence down the road when you move out and make that. So we're going to keep rinsing and repeating the strategy and keep building bigger cash flow as we leave. And if you look at the global view, which is one of the things I love about uh, Ron, Ron's always looking at the global view of his whole strategy, uh, of his whole portfolio. Um, Over time, this is going to create a substantial amount of real estate income um, and probably offset your housing costs at some point, a hundred percent down the line. Yeah. I mean, potentially even, yeah. living Cause if this really, one's really doing nice 1500 a month, when you move out of this one and it's 2000 minus some expenses, say that's another 1500, that's going to be three grand coming in just from two properties. And what I love about this is you're saying you're upgrading your living situation. So yes, but maybe you wouldn't have been able to do it or your conservativeness would have not allowed you to take on the big payment of this Tacoma house. Maybe you wouldn't even have qualified for it without the rental income that you've been getting from the duplex. Exactly. Guilt-free. And there's different stages of life, right? Like if I had, you know, if I was redoing everything, I would do your strategy. And I'm sure you would have done it a lot earlier in, you know, in your twenties, probably if you had known, but you have to do what makes sense at your stage. And so my wife and I saw before we had our first kid, we had a couple year window there where we could do this house hack and it wind up, maybe we stayed there a little longer because of the pandemic than we had planned on it, but you can do that stuff. But then once you get into, you have two kids, okay, then you willing to sacrifice a little bit more on the, money side for a little more quality of life, but do it in a way where you have an exit strategy. Yeah. And it's definitely a, not only you upgrading the, um, property, um, you're going from two levels to three levels. It's, um, you know, it's pretty decently nice property, good size. Um, and two it's and a half bath. And Tacoma is a really nice neighborhood too. And, and I actually think it's a very 
undervalued uh, neighborhood. When you look next door to Brightwood, Brightwood's more expensive, but I would say not as nice of a neighborhood, actually. Um, so it is sort of a weird little pocket up there where it's a Tacoma's great value. Um, and I, I think I've said this on the previous podcast, sort of the the stretch from 16th Street Heights going east through Brightwood and Tacoma and Briggs Park is where I think we are just primed for a ton of appreciation over the next decade. Yeah, you guys talked about metro stations and metro maybe not mattering as much yeah. with ride shares plus the pandemic. And I think that makes a ton of sense about some of those neighborhoods. They're pretty close in, but they were maybe overlooked. And some of them have a little ways to go as far as the, the you know, maybe the little dirty or just kind of like not quite so many amenities. But there's a lot, there's a lot there. And I also think just, it sounds a little out there, but if you go and walk these neighborhoods, I think you'll kind of just get a vibe for which ones you connect with and which ones just like have a good energy for you, I guess. And for me, some of the hotter neighborhoods, it, it doesn't do it for me. A lot me. of hustle and bustle. Yeah, and- a lot of hustle and bustle and maybe a little less safe feeling. I would have loved them earlier phases of life, but at this but now you get a kid. At this phase uh, of life, yeah. like certain neighborhoods like Tacoma, I go over to Mount Rainier in Maryland. I think that's a really cool area. Colonial Village up at the top of the tip of DC is a really, really cool neighborhood, very expensive, but to me, I'd rather have that than live in Shaw or Petworth. Yeah, I think Tacoma, the way I describe it to a lot of people is it, it is very suburban, but in the city. Um, it is a very suburban-like feel. Um, it, it's you know very similar feel to Silver Spring, which is close by to it in the suburbs. But the other thing, too, is that you love the house, right? So you and your wife love the house. So you talked about exit strategies. And this is also a risk mitigation strategy that you already have plans to you know this might be your primary residence like you said things change as you get older you guys might just fall in love with the house and it might become your primary residence for you it might be your forever home who knows but you bought it with the idea that you could rent it on section eight i bet tacoma would still work market rent as well if something ever happened to the section eight program or you decided it wasn't for you or something so it's important to have multiple you're not just buying the property okay this is my forever home or you know you're buying in a neighborhood that you know you can rent out easily you're buying in a neighborhood that you know that you could get a section 8 tenant and make a lot of money on cash flow so it's it's good to be able to pivot a lot of multiple exit strategies is always a plus the ability to pivot is always a plus exactly yeah and i would say you know some advice you'll get it depends on where you are some sometimes you hear the advice of just jump, you jump in, pull the trigger. You got to go for it. I think in a really expensive market like ours, that advice isn't so great. I think the better advice is, is really learn, you know, if you want to buy a condo and house hack a condo, that's, that's a good move. Like that's a good first move. Um, you're probably not going to hit a home run, but you're going to get in and start to understand a little bit. And maybe, you know, maybe just short-term rental it when you're, uh, away for a weekend and just see how you like being a landlord. But I think you all like, if you're putting down down payments and signet tens of thousands of dollars and you're going on this slow and steady path of I'm going to buy a property every even three or four years, you do have to be selective about which type of property you buy and just look at all those things and make sure you know that, you know, the ceiling height needs to be a certain height to rent it, you know, and just, I guess the point I'm making is I didn't know all this stuff in the beginning of this journey in 2015, when I discovered this whole thing, 
Um, it happened over time. Back then I bought a one bedroom condo in Adams Morgan and I can rent that for break even now. Um, but I had no idea about any of this stuff, right? So you pick up these skills over time, the more you connect with people locally, which was why this show is such a good idea. Cause you can listen to all the strategy stuff you want and mindset stuff you want, but until you connect with people that are really doing it in your city, then it's all theory. Yeah. And really understanding what your downside risks in any particular location are. So particularly protecting your downside risks, um, and condo in Adams Morgan really doesn't have much downside risk, but there are locations and types of assets in the area that do have larger downside risks. Right. Um, so you always want to protect what that downside is. Um, conversely, we always want to, you know, um, one bedroom in Adams Morgan, if it's in an older building, that's probably not something I would have bought. Um, so like if I had known you, then I might've, you know, tried to, you know, I don't want to say, push or, but I would have told you what the the upside and the downside risks are. And like, I imagine it's probably not been the greatest appreciating asset in that time. No. Um, yeah. And that's something I would be curious to hear what the listeners think about this of whether, you know, I could sell that for 400 now. Um, what'd you pay for it? 348. No, I mean, not, so that, that's not eight terrible. Years ago, though. Yeah. So, so not, not great, but okay. it, at least it did appreciate. There are, there are certain buildings in DC over that time, the period that haven't appreciated. Um, I don't know what the condo fee is on that, but typically, it's really the, low. The, and that's the key. The higher condo fee buildings are typically going to have flat values over the course of time. Yeah. So I think like a decision that I'll face is um, it's a st- extremely low maintenance rental with an amazing tenant and you can always find someone great. And the rents will grow, right? So that break even will turn into a hundred bucks a, mo- uh, a month, and then two hundred the next year. And you're getting appreciation. You get de- debt pay down. The debt pay down by this point is kind of getting a little higher, um, and so it's fine. I think I probably have to decide: Do you want to take the investing thing a little more serious and really optimize and, and reallocate that capital? Say I can get a hundred and twenty thousand out of it, and then lever that up and buy a house. So my situation was the same. I bought uh, like, I don't know what your condo fee is in your Adams Morgan. Okay. So you've got it really, really <sighs> low. Nice. So mine was like uh, creeping up to a thousand dollars a month yeah. in Southwest DC. So I made the decision during the pandemic when I was, when cash flow was okay. If I got a couple of deadbeat tenants, I really, I can't have this. It was a thousand dollars loss a month. And I was just basically banking on the appreciation which was on average $15,000 a year. So I would benefit $3,000 a year or whatever. A lot of that appreciation on that particular property, though, probably really materialized in the last five years because that was in Southwest DC, which had been, you know. People don't even know where it was yeah. until the wharf came up. People and thought now, I lived in Southeast. And now it's like one of the coolest, hippest neighborhoods. But for the first 15 years you owned it, wasn't. But the other thing that this, because like you, I didn't know that that was a bad investment because it wasn't supposed to be an investment. It was supposed to be a place for me to live. 100%. And, I, and I don't regret, I had some of my greatest, you know, times in my life in that place. Yeah. Exactly. So, yeah, I love living there. And the other thing is that it, it, that condo allowed me to do several things. There was a time when I refinanced the condo and was able to 
pay off the loan on a different house. Talk about the holistic strategy and looking at your whole property portfolio is like a little monopoly board. I was swapping out mortgages and stuff. So just the equity that I had built in that condo and and the whole, just getting started with that condo, even though it wasn't the best investment, um, it allowed me to kind of move to the next step, which is what you did with your duplex. And for, you know, sort of perspective, it not being the the best investment by any means, um, the numbers on that look like you bought that for about a hundred thousand and sold it for 400,000. I paid 91,000 in 1999 <laughs> for it. And we sold it for four fifteen. Yeah. So still, still some pretty big numbers we're talking about for even, you know, something not, not that we consider not a great investment. Um, I don't expect Kevin's condo to do that. Um, Southwest was a really cheap neighborhood, you know, around the year 2000. Right. Yeah. But the other thing, too, that and and this is kind of obvious and people talk about it, but some investors are really inflexible about this. And maybe you'll become less flexible as you have like 20 kids. But the the fact that you because I've lived in all of my rentals. (laughs) Karen's like, what? (laughs) I've lived in all of my rentals except for one. So a lot of times real estate investors, they just buy a investment property and they've never lived in it, whatever. But what you're doing is you're living in these properties, you're uh, living in these really nice houses that you may otherwise, if you weren't a real estate investor, didn't have rentals, be able to live in. And you're getting the primary residence owner occupied interest rate. And so in some situations, like what I did, you could, before you move out and move on to your next property, you slap a HELOC on your primary mm-hmm. residence. So then you've got more money to play with. So there's an, I've talked to some investors that I'm like, they, they're like Russell's meetup. We'll be chatting afterwards and they'll say, oh, I want to do this and that. And I want to do what you're doing. And I'm like, okay, well, what you should do is you should buy this house, this $800 house, $800,000 house, move into it. Whatever. And they're like, oh, I'm not going to move. You know, like, so these people that are so inflexible that they don't want to move, you're moving like every two years. Now. Well, they don't want to buy something that's on the MLS because they think that if it's on the MLS, it's not a good deal, maybe. And they, they have a fantasy of going out and generating leads and getting off market deals, which is possible, but very, very difficult um, to do. You know, it's funny because, um, you know, say four years ago, you probably were able to get discounts from wholesalers. But the the stuff I'm seeing from wholesalers this day, I'm like, that's more money that would sell for in the MLS and someone buys it. And if you're a new investor, you don't, you don't know this stuff. You don't yeah. know. Well, I mean, here, here's the deal with like the exactly what you're saying is understanding the financing element and just some of the tax benefits. Like don't take it from me, like someone who's a relative intermediate investor, some of the hot, like some of the guys I know that are crushing it the most out on the West coast that are flipping $4 million houses, they buy a primary residence. They fix up the primary residence as they live in it. And then after two years, they pack up all their stuff and they sell it for a million dollar tax free gain. Cause they lived in it for two years. And you know, they, they're, they're like, it's a pain in the ass, but, but they're like the tax efficiency of doing that right, is exactly. so beneficial and they're just driven. You know, a lot of other people would say, I'm not going to move every couple of years. And I don't blame those people. But it goes to show that these people that are running multi million dollar businesses are still taking advantage of owner occupant 
tax laws. You know, on that, I think there's also some uh, interesting strategy you're doing where this may help you or it may not, depending on how many properties you acquired on the line is um, your properties, mortgages are in your name or your wife's name and not jointly. Um, that is a strategy I did not under fully understand until I probably bought my fifth property. Um, that you run out of mortgages? That you run out of mortgages. <laughs> We're going to be limited to 10 conventional mortgages per person. Um, I don't know. Is that your guys' intention in doing that? Um, is the ability to get more mortgages? Yes. You and your wife own 20 properties when this is all said <laughs> done in Washington, D.C. You guys are going to kill it. <laughs> you guys are going to have hundreds of millions of dollars in a property portfolio. Oh, Kevin's going to change his last name to Asamoah then. And uh, buy out Joe's brand. And <laughs> yeah, no, I think, I think that's... If you look at your debt to income, right? I mean, my wife's never bought a property in her name before, so it just makes a lot more sense for her to get one under her belt. And then, um, you know, I can refi, I refied our property already, right? As we talked about earlier. And so then there's no, you know, there's no, no awkwardness about I just refied and now I'm looking for a new house. So this is important to mention, I think, because I don't yeah. think a lot of people think of, you know, they're just they don't I, think ahead of this. Right. I didn't. Don't think ahead. So think about your situation, whether it would be more advantageous for you to just buy the property in your own name. So it's one credit profile and you're not getting the debt on two people's names, adding debt to two people. Yeah. And then you're essentially doubling the amount of properties you can buy with conventional financing using this strategy. So what is the rule, Russell, 10, 10 mortgages? 10, 10 mortgages for conventional, and then you're capped. But 10 for the husband, 10 for the wife, now you get 20. Um, it's a nice little workaround that is easy to do and, and legal, right? So often we're seeing investors do things that aren't 100% legal, um, and this is completely legal to do this. But the likely – I mean, I always like to say that you can, <laughs> you can, you can retire in D.C., by buying two, three. Yeah, properties. I mean, yes. <laughs> we've already talked about how two will get them to three thousand a month cash flow. Um, you know, it does it does not take well, a I mean, large number of properties here to make a lot uh, yeah. a lot of money? Yeah. the The funny thing is, my my mom, you know, my mom and dad owned rentals when I was a kid, and sometimes I would go over there as they're like fixing the rentals, and my mom's talking to contractors, and I, I didn't really understand at the time, and it didn't really click for me until much later, until I was about thirty. Um, but you know, when I talked to her about, about bigger pockets and you know, you can make all this cash flow and you can quit your job off of rentals, she's like, huh, you know, we never thought of it that way at all. For us, it was just this is a long term investment. She was basically saying these were negative cash flow for a long time, but now they're they've all been paid off for like twenty years. Yeah. Right. And so like it's just interesting to think about everyone's just like cash flow, cash flow, cash flow. And, and for her, it was like more of a wealth preservation. Like my dad was making good income and they were like, we need to diversify. We don't want all of our eggs in like his business. And only the business, stocks. only the stock market. Yeah. And they're like, let's just buy these, put some debt on them. There's probably, I think they bought with 18% interest rate at one point. Right. <laughs> and, um, and they just looked at it as these are going to appreciate over time. And, you know, I'm not advising that anyone goes out and buys a negative, uh, but, but it shows that there's a lot of different situations and there's a high income earner that can pull that off and it makes sense for them. And there's tax benefits and 
not everything fits in this neat little box of I'm going yeah, to buy my, 20 properties and retire off. My most recent flow. purchase um, is a cash flow negative property. It is not something I would necessarily suggest for a newbie to go out and buy. But once I have a number of properties and substantial cash flow coming in and substantial income coming in from my main business, being a couple hundred bucks in the red or is it in the black? I always forget. Um, isn't really impacting me the same way that someone who's 30 years old and making 60 grand a year, yeah. but, you know, right. But when you guys say that most DMV investors are not cash flowing very much, they're, they're, they're doing that strategy that you just talked about where you're, you're the cash flow Isn't the thing you're banking on. You're banking on appreciation and putting your wealth and building that way. Not so much the cash flow. I think there's yes. only two ways to really make DC cash flow, And that's rent by the room or section eight. And I don't think most DMV investors are doing that. I think most people are have a townhouse in Fairfax that their you know mortgage payments two thousand and their, their rents twenty two hundred. Right. Yeah. Right. I think that's I think that typical. is definitely the majority of them, and I do agree with you that rent by the room and the Section Eight strategies are the two that optimize cash flow. So when we talk about you can cash flow and retire. By buying two or three properties in DC, we're talking about you have to do one of like Kevin's strategy or my strategy. And they're yeah. more labor intensive. They're not, you know, uh, sitting on the beach. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Sure. Cause um, I'm using a traditional rental model with my rentals and it takes me 15 to 30 minutes a month to manage them. Ron is doing the rent by the room and is spending substantially more time. He's making a lot more money doing it, but he's spending more time. Mm-hmm. Definitely more time. How much time would you say? And granted, Ron is retired, know. and that's all he right. does. The pan- I was thinking on the drive up here that I've been retired for two years, but it's been two years. I don't know what it's like to be retired, and there's not a global pandemic going on. So <laughs> I, I, I really don't know. But um, as things are improving, and as deadbeat tenants are going away, and as um, vacancies are not long, no longer an issue like they used to be, you know, it's going to be less time. But and also there's always the beginning, like when you buy a property, like my sister bought a property last year and I said, there, you've made it through year one because the summer hits. And then all of a sudden we realized, oh, the portable air conditioning unit that was in the attic, it wasn't blowing out the hot air. And I detached the thing from the wall, which had a hole in the exterior wall to blow the hot air out. And there was a bird's nest, the whole length of the tube. And so I cleared that out, whatever, and then had my handyman put a piece of mesh over it on the outside. But we hadn't been through summer in that house. So we had to learn what, you know, okay, then we go through winter. And then in the in the basement, they might have two people might you be using space heaters on the same 15 amp circuit. So, okay, we have to, you know, figure that out. So there is kind of like, year one problems and then you're going to experience like maybe your HVAC is going to go out in year one in this new Tacoma house. And, but once you've replaced the HVAC and the washer and dryer and fridge and everything, there's, there runs out of, you run out of things that could go wrong. You know what I mean? Like you've replaced well, then the cycle starts all over again. It's yeah. Starts, but starts normally, over- normally the stuff lasts 10, 15 yeah. years. So normally after like two or three years of replacing everything in the house, you've got seven years that you could kind yeah. of like, okay, you can breathe easy a little bit. So, um, but there is that initial like one year, you know, like you've got to kind of get used to the, 
to the property and yeah so so kevin did your wife ever see the house in tacoma that we put on the contract <laughs> yes she oh did. she did okay unlike the last one because uh the first house yeah <laughs> he, it was completely sight unseen and I, <laughs> I i was thinking i was like well i didn't show his wife the tacoma house did she, i wasn't house. sure if they we went, went to the to open, open house. house okay because i was gonna say that is a lot of trust um <laughs> two houses sight unseen but even the one was was a lot of trust. Oh yeah, <laughs> but that was a multi unit, and multi units are super rare in DC, right? So you, I mean, you own you're one of like what maybe a handful of people in Washington in the world that own a multifamily unit in Washington. DC. Yeah, in, in DC, <laughs> in DC proper, only four percent of the housing stock is legal multifamilies, and that amount is shrinking because what happens is developers buy them up, carve them up into condos, and sell them off individually. So it, you know, it was probably 5% at some point. Currently it's 4%. At some point it's going to be 3%. Um, that number is going to keep going down and down. Yeah. And down. I so mean, you're in an exclusive club. And there's, I think there are tools out there through public records that are relatively easy. I can make a little video and put it in your show notes if you want, or you can go to a neighborhood through the assessor site and you can see all the addresses that are zoned as multifamily yep. properties. And you can just look like, Look in Brooklyn where I live and look how many multifamilies there are and then find like which sub neighborhood they're in and look at a map and just look at the addresses. And there's a bunch in my little pocket of Brooklyn. It's, it's an anomaly, but there's definitely tools out there that, that if you just take a little time to figure them out, um, a lot of the information is publicly recorded. It yeah. doesn't have to be so mysterious. One of my favorite strategies is actually because a lot of real estate agents don't deal with multifamilies. They don't understand the distinction between a legal multifamily and a regular row house. So I regularly look in the MLS at properties that I suspect are legal multifamilies, then check that against the tax record. I'm like, oh, they're listed as a single family, but it's a legal multifamily. That is a $100,000 mistake every time it happens. And actually, that happened on your primary residence run. Your your house was listed as a single-family home, and the tax records indicate it is a legal two-family. Two right. I'm some weird anomaly, though. It's like grandfathered in something. I don't know. Yeah. But I'm a legal two-unit. I am also part of the exclusive club. I, my forever home is a legal two-unit. But it's like a weird thing. Yeah, it's where. it's one of my favorite strategies, though, is uh, um, I have a client, two or three clients a year that buy something that meets that where it's mislisted. And um, I remember we bought one in Petworth um, a couple of years ago and w- my client had paid 900000 And I'm like, this would have easily been, you know, pri- should have been priced at a million had they... Um, just listed it in the multifamily section. But one of the advantages for me, so everyone always, you know, if you talk about, if you've done any research in real estate investing, people talk about multi-units and there's a lot of advantages that are obvious. But one advantage for me with the rent by the room is that if I own a legal two-unit property, then that means I can stuff six unrelated adults in each unit. Yeah. So let's say I bought a Brooklyn duplex that had three bedrooms each and those Brooklyn things have that kind of normally it's a one bedroom with that lot of back porch room thing that, so, but 
there's an opportunity to maybe put up a wall in the common area, the living room area, and then, you know, kind of shrink the dining room, living room area, and then make that a three bedroom, you know, but it, 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 you can, you can cram. If you're talking about a two, like mine is a two unit row house in Columbia Heights. Mm -hmm. So you can cram more people. You can get legally 12 unrelated people in there. You know, that, I don't use my two. I use my two as my primary residence, so I haven't d done this in practice. But in theory, we're not getting six people in that basement. But no, no. <laughs> yeah, well. I mean, some of the you know some of these companies that are trying to place young professional renters rent by the room people. There's companies like Bungalow or something like that. Yeah, that yeah. Are trying to do this, and they're reaching out to me because I have this three bed, one bath. Interesting. Listed. And I haven't really taken their calls or anything like that. I'm not really interested, but um, that shows that there's got to be some demand out there if there's this venture-backed company. Well, Bungalow is my competition, basically, yeah. but Bungalow is really expensive. So if you don't know what Bungalow is, is it's this uh, basically they do rent by the room. They they rent your house, they fix it up, they furnish it, and then they do the rent by the room strategy, and they right. make their money off the difference between off their, that delta. Their, right, they're paying you market rent, which is three thousand, and then they're making six thousand themselves. So again, yeah, it's more work for me, but why am I not the one taking advantage, you know, making the money off of the rent by the room? But if you wanted a management less intensive strategy, you could rent to bungalow, but I don't think you're going to get the you're not going to get the, cash the big flow. rent premium. Yeah. Right, you're not going to get that, but, but bungalow charges a lot of money. So I might have an $800 bedroom on bungalow. You're going to pay 1100, 1200, but they are nice properties. I mean, they furnish them nicely and they fix them up and yeah. So Kevin, anything you want the listeners to know about you or any last, uh, any good tips for them before we head out? Oh man. Um, let me think about this for a sec. Thinking about this on the way over, like real estate tips. How many? Nope, bigger, he's got none. He's never learned anything. Saying, how many bigger pockets podcasts have you listened to as part of your job? <laughs> <laughs> you probably have a zillion tips in yeah, your head. I think. I think what I would say is, you know, more information is not necessarily the answer. <laughs> Always, I would say finding people locally that are doing things, uh, that you want to do. Um, yeah, I mean, it's very similar to what we actually just talked about with yeah. Joe. Um, take, take action, it just, learn from just in time information yeah. versus just in case information. Yeah. Okay. Like you're going to want to go out there and learn about every single strategy and, uh, just in case you want to use that strategy, but ultimately you have to kind of look at your own strengths and weaknesses. Um, and for me, my strengths are, uh, working with people and uh, being a landlord actually is like a strength of mine and having the resilience to solve problems as they come up. Um, and there and, will be problems and you have to get out of the mindset that there shouldn't be problems. Like actually that's the whole reason the thing works. Otherwise everyone else would be buying a house. You know, I've never heard that before. So that's actually a great tip is to think about what your strengths are because like my sister says, she hates being a landlord because she hates asking people for money. She hates the sales part of it. I never thought about it until she mentioned it. There are so many aspects to being a landlord. You got to be a salesman. You've got to yeah. ask people for money, you know, but, but, you know, I think a lot of people look at real estate, maybe from the outside as it's all the same, right? Like a real estate investor versus agent. I don't even know the difference. I don't know that I could do a real estate agent job 
very well. It's just the, the, the sort of extra version that's required of that, uh, versus, or I don't know if I could be great at going into living rooms and negotiating with sellers and trying to get, you know, steep discounts. I don't think that's my strength, but like designing a system that's going to kind of adapt and stand the test of time and just try to keep the big picture in mind. Like that's kind of where I, where I live. And doesn't mean it's for you. Your thing might be going and chasing down deals and you can generate big chunks of cash that way. So um, just kind of think about your strengths. Don't go chase someone else's dream just because it was inspiring to you. Like take that energy and, and chase your own dream. Yeah. We talk about that in real estate sales quite a bit. Don't try to necessarily imitate big agent X, their personality suited to do what they're doing. You need to figure out who you are and play to your own strengths. Um, and then you're going to be more successful when you do that. But so that's a great tip. Yeah. Anyways, uh, check back with us next week. Um, hopefully we'll, if we don't have any COVID related issues, we will continue to keep going week, week, weekly, but we'll see. Thanks for listening to the DC Real Estate Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the show. If you want to contact the hosts, reach out to them at info at dcrealestatepodcast.com. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the show wherever you access your podcasts. 